Hello, my name's Will and I'm here to read you a creepy story. This is called Upon the Hill. This is part two. If you've not listened to part one yet, you need to do that first. So go and check it out and then come back here. I'll link to part one in the episode notes. But before we get into it, I just want to say thank you for listening. And I hope very much that you're enjoying the 31 nights of Halloween. This obviously is day 12 because it's the 12th of October. Uh, So we've still got loads to come, so make sure you stay tuned so you don't miss any of it, and make sure you're in the Facebook groups as well. Whilst you're there, let me know what you think of the story so far. Okay, that's enough from me. Let's see what's going on. Part 2 Getting there was more troublesome than he had first anticipated. While there was a small country road which led to the foot of the hill, it had been apparently blocked off by the villagers. An arrangement of large concrete slabs, red bricks, old wooden posts and other discarded materials had been unceremoniously dumped at either end of the road, making entrance by car an impossibility and by foot only with great difficulty. Seeing the very real and physical lengths which the locals would go to in order to stop anyone from accessing the hill, John felt an increasing impulse to reach its peak and then return to the village to let those below know how ridiculous they had been. After leaving his car by one of the blocked entrances, he climbed over the stack of rubble with some effort, careful not to cut himself on anything which protruded, and then made his way along the road. For a moment, he considered what he might find on the hillside, and the very real possibility of discovering the grim remains of a previous visitor. Thoughts which momentarily left him questioning his current course of action. The road was just wide enough for a single car, and it had obviously been left to the elements for some time, with large potholes scouring its surface and deposits of mud and gravel covering the tarmac in places. As a hill came into view, he was struck by how much larger it appeared to be than he had estimated. From a distance, he would have assumed a quick hike to its peak, but looking at its incline arching away from him, he realised that it would probably take two hours to reach its crest, and that was only if a track or at least good footing could be found. Looking at his watch, it was early afternoon, but he believed he'd still have enough daylight to make it to the top and then back to his car safely. It was there that he began to notice some of the strange landmark's more peculiar features. It stood quite alone, with no accompanying hills around it, as if it had been left there in isolation, quarantined from the land itself. Its ascent seemed more pronouncedly crooked than it had at a distance, asymmetrical, leaning slightly to one side in bizarre fashion, and its surface was covered in sporadic pockets of trees, while wild and untamed collections of long grasses, a tangle of dead yellow strands embraced or strangled by the green shoots of more successful strains invading all around. Most surprising of all was that there was a man-made path which ran up towards the peak, one which he was delighted to discover. It had been spared the onslaught of the wiry and spindly grass which had consumed everything else. For a moment, John considered that this was all a hoax, and that he was the victim of an elaborate joke, as the path looked well-worn, as though often used. But then a much darker thought flirted with his rational sensibilities, that the hill itself was leaning inward, enticing visitors, welcoming them to an unknown destination. He quickly dismissed this notion and continued on. An old gate blocked the way, It was wooden, but had obviously been subjected to the ravages of Scottish weather for some time, as the surface was partially eaten away by green moss and mould. As it creaked open, John stepped over the threshold, and, as the gate closed behind him, a shiver ran up his spine, 
accompanied by a mild, nauseous feeling in his throat. If he had been superstitious himself, he would have said that the place was bad, that the air seemed foul, but he was not easily affected by such thoughts. It was more likely that something he had eaten had not agreed with him, rather than the hill itself was acting upon his nerves. Wandering up the path, he attempted to make as good as time as possible. The idea of making his way back down at night was not one to be relished. With unsure and unseen footing, and as the afternoon sky was already a little dimmer than it had been at noon, he marched up the hill with intent, excited to take in the view from the top. The incline increased slightly, and with it so did the sporadic nature of its surroundings. The long grass had claimed everything by the path, and as clumps of trees occasionally flanked him, he could now appreciate why the locals had come to fear such a place. The reeds of dead grass and ivy encircling each trunk suggesting malevolent purpose. Some of the trees had even fallen over, taking unusual positions at steep angles, appearing as if they had been pulled into the earth, broken by the fingers of grass which had clung to the husks of wood like a very real leviathan. But while the idea was fanciful, somehow the hillside did indeed feel wrong, unnatural in places, and as John ascended it, a coldness began to creep up his arms. He had hiked before, and in his job had often been required to brave the wilderness while evaluating land, but this felt different. It was as if the land was affecting the temperature, rather than the weather, making it increasingly difficult to ignore the oppressive atmosphere of the hill. Stopping for a moment, he rubbed his arms hastily to warm them, pausing to appraise his progress. He was astonished by how far he actually had climbed. He had been walking for no more than 20 minutes, but looking in the direction he had come from, he must have been at least halfway up the hillside. But how could he be? At every evaluation of the hill's size, it seemed to confound the previous conclusion. It was as if the place was warped somehow. John laughed to himself at being so swept up in the impression of his surroundings. Yet the silence bothered him. No birds, no rustling bushes filled with rabbits, foxes, or even insects. Indeed, the entire hillside felt dead. No, not dead, he thought, but in the grips of death itself. It was, however, winter, so perhaps he should have expected the seeming sterility of the countryside. But the quiet still perturbed him. Then another unusual phenomenon came to his attention, an inconsistency, something which contradicted his own memory, his very faculties. The path behind was now different. While climbing, John had been amazed by how overgrown the hillside was compared to the track leading upward. This led him to suspect that it was perhaps used regularly. But on looking down the hill, it now appeared to be engulfed by the wandering hands of nature. Perhaps not completely, but certainly to a far greater degree than it had been before. The grass swept over it, while bushes and trees leaned in nearby, suggesting a more rugged terrain than he had initially noticed. Yet the path ahead lay clear. Looking to the world outside and down below, everything appeared distant somehow, almost synthetic in appearance. The colours were not as vivid. The meadows which populated the valleys had foregone their vibrancy, and the sky itself filtered down towards the ground with what John could only describe as false lights. He struggled to dismiss the unwelcome feelings he was experiencing, and while he continued on for a time, 
as he climbed the nausea from when he had first stepped foot onto the hillside returned. The cold sensation which had enveloped his extremities had progressed like a disease, penetrating his insides and chilling him to the bone. John had tried his best to reach the peak, but he was no fool. He knew that not a month passed without a report on the news about an inexperienced walker or climber going missing on a remote mountain. And while the hill was a seemingly more humble prospect, he was now willing to accept defeat, even welcoming it. The surroundings felt menacing, and his current physical condition was enough to cause retreat. Though he had not reached the summit, John decided that if he still made it back to the village after being on the hillside, that would be enough to dispute their superstitions. Perhaps he would return in the summer to evaluate the land. Considering his decision to be a postponement rather than admission of failure, entertaining the notion that the locals may have been right all along was not something he wished to do. There would have to be evidence of his adventure, of course. Taking his phone out of his pocket, John began to shiver as once again an icy sensation crept up through his arms, provoking a desire to be warmed by the fire back at the pub. With a few artificial clicks, he photographed the surrounding hill, then, as a joke, took a picture of himself, forcing a smile, with a tangle of grass and trees as a backdrop. What he saw, when he viewed the pictures, sent chills through his body. The first photographs of the area turned out as expected, but the last betrayed something through the bushes behind him, what looked like a building of some description. At the forefront of John's mind, he was filled with an impulse to run, to leave the place, but he was fascinated by the idea of a hidden construction, removed from the outside world by a barrier of leaf, branch, and legend. Taking a deep breath, he crept quietly through the twisted glass, pulling the leaves of a large, low-hanging tree to the side. There, sitting on that hillside where locals feared to tread, lay what looked like an old chapel or church. One small steeple reached upwards towards the sky, with large stained glass windows, many of which were broken, dotting the shell of the grey stone building, speaking of days more prominent and glad. John's heart raced at the sight of it. Perhaps this was the reason why the hill had been tarnished with superstition and myth. An old abandoned church was certainly a fertile foundation for frightening tales. Yet the church itself did not banish his own feelings of caution. As he broke through a layer of leaves, grass and climbing ivy, he could not help but respond to his nerves. Sweat began to drip down his face while his heart pumped blood with an unsettling, unstable rhythm. Leaving the hill was still his intention, but as he drew closer to the stone archway which sheltered the church door within it, he surmised that the locals would be more open to his conventional explanation of why people feared the place if they knew that he had been inside. Without seeing the interior of the church, the villagers could once again spin stories and falsehoods about what remained hidden. The door was a dark brown oak, with scratched decorative metal black strips adorning its surface, but unfortunately it seemed locked. John gave it a few good solid shoves with his hands, and then, surprisingly, with a groan of countless years, it creaked open slightly, creating a space just big enough for him to slide through. Peering in through the gap, he could see that the church floor was covered in fallen masonry from the roof above. A large collection of stones lay piled up behind the door, 
their collective weight had held it shut, and although they had given way in part, they still provided enough resistance to stop it from opening completely. Cold, musty air escaped from inside, smelling stale and of stone long since abandoned. For a moment, John considered what he should do. Such an old building left to rot for decades, if not centuries, could prove dangerous, but the desire still burned deep within him to prove that he had bravely seen all that could be seen, that there were no ghosts or ghouls in there, only fragments of a forgotten history. Taking out his phone, he poked his hand through the gap in the door and took a few photographs with the flash. The light lit up the entire hall inside, showing it to be filled with rubble from an obviously falling roof, but at the back of the room there lay what appeared to be an altar of some kind. From his vantage point, it looked to be made of stone, resting on a raised step several feet high. Above it, John was thrilled by the presence of an inscription of some kind, carved into the back wall, but unfortunately he could not decipher the lettering from the doorway. Sighing, he knew that the only way to read it would be to go inside. The concern of being injured or trapped by anything falling from above was paramount, but his curiosity was now in full flight his enthusiasm quelling both the sickness in his stomach and the icy numbing of his extremities. After once more debating the risks, John decided that he would be as quiet as possible, so as to reduce any risk of a cave-in. He just had to look. Taking a deep breath, he managed to squeeze through the opening, with a little effort, to the darkness inside. Using a small light on the back of his phone, he was now better situated to survey his surroundings in greater detail. The air was significantly colder, stinging the back of his throat as he inhaled. And, though he had expected the interior to be cooler than the outside, due to the volume of stone used in the building's construction, the church in reality felt more like a crypt than any place of worship. Stepping as carefully as he could, trying not to disturb or dislodge the large piles of rubble on the floor, John kept his eyes trained on the roof overhead nervous that any loud noise might bring a piece of masonry down on top of him. The extent of the damage now became clear, with the occasional small shards of light penetrating the darkness from a few open wound-like holes above, however, the hall remained surprisingly dim. John found this curious, as he felt that the interior around him should have been more visible somehow. It was as if the light was being absorbed by the darkened corners of the hall but he immediately dismissed this notion, as fanciful and cited his escalating imagination, as good reason as any to keep his nerves in check. Isolated and unknown environments could even be the most rational of minds. After climbing over two substantial piles of rubble, being careful to avoid several large, sharp pieces of broken wood jutting out from underneath, he finally found himself at the rear of the church hall. There lay the altar, a table carved from stone and smoothed by attentive and devoted hands. It was easy to imagine how frightening a priest from the Dark Ages would have been, poised up there, spouting fearsome tales from an unenlightened position, foaming at the mouth about damnation and demonic forces preying on the souls of the weak. A sense of elation and excitement filled John's mind. To be standing near to something with such a deep sense of history Yet, he considered warily the possibility that the altar had been quarried from that very hill, wrenched from a deposit of rock deep in the ground, born of processes far older than humanity itself. 
but the thrill of such an old and rare discovery quickly extinguished those thoughts. So enamoured by the object was he, that he almost overlooked a small open doorway to the right of the altar, which appeared to lead down a flight of stairs to an underground chamber, possibly a vault or tomb. Shivering at the thought of what lay below, he knew that even with his level of scepticism, there would be no venturing down there. Superstition or not, wandering underneath the floor of a clearly decaying building was not a wise idea. Pointing his phone's narrow beam of white light to the rear of the hall, it cast a diminutive yet welcome glare over a series of dusty steps which led up to the altar's platform. A natural arrangement from which a priest or preacher would have delivered their services hundreds of years ago, but yet there felt little that was natural about it or its housing. Again, a creeping unease began to ruminate in his mind, as he imagined a feverin' and angered holy man standing above all, shouting cryptic and doom-laden parables of ancient origin at a huddled, confused, and frightened congregation. Making his way onto the platform, eager to study the inscription on the back wall more closely, his attention was unfortunately distracted from the cluttered ground as his foot clipped a broken rock lying on the last step. Stumbling forward abruptly, John's shoulder slammed painfully against the edge of the stone altar before reaching out a hand to break his fall on the cold, hard platform floor. The noise of his fall echoed through the building, with the sound ricocheting from wall to roof. For a second, he imagined that he had heard a fainter sound stirring from elsewhere, close but far away. Answering in kind, a small piece of debris plummeted from above, smashing to the ground, teasing and threatening a series of heavier and deadlier replies yet to come. Relief coursed through his body. Glad as he was that the object had not been more substantial in size, and even more so that the stone impacted in front of the small doorway rather than against his head, he was becoming increasingly unsure of his safety. Regaining a solid footing, he stood up on the platform holding his shoulder which was now battered and bruised, keeping his eyes trained to the roof nervously. All but for a gentle wind whistling through the holes and gaps in the building's outer shell, silence was omnipotent. Anxious that any other movement might bring the entire ceiling down on top of him, John waited for several minutes before assuming temporary safety from further falling masonry. Then, slowly and more carefully than before, he turned and appraised the altar more closely. Religious iconography dotted its sides along with strange, jagged symbols which he did not quite recognise. It was easy to imagine a communion of sorts being given from there, each member of the congregation somberly approaching, dishevelled and malnourished, receiving a blessing from a stern priest who spoke more of wrath than of love. John would happily concede to anyone that he was not the most creative or imaginative in nature. But there, in that forgotten place, He was surprised by how vivid his impressions were. He could almost see those who would have worshipped there, pallid faces sheltering from the bitter cold of winter, bodies withered by the fruitless produce of a poor harvest, yet a fear of something extraordinary and undefined suffocating their every thought. Yes, the church was such a decrepit little place that it was easy for the mind to populate it with the ghosts of lamented souls. Of course, he had no way of knowing how correct or incorrect his assumptions were. Shirking off the shivers of a wandering mind, and laughing to himself for being so easily affected by the place, John's gaze finally fell upon the inscription carved above, into the brick wall. Reaching out, he ran his fingers over the dips and rough edges left by the author's chisel. 
it was clear that the message on the wall was out of place. Rushed as it was with each letter unaligned with those that came before it, suggesting them to be the product of someone hurried, wishing to spend as little time within the church as possible. Standing back, the light from his phone now illuminated the words which came sharply into focus. Those who dwelt in Dungorth took this hill in 1472. In 1481 we give it back, in hope that those we disturbed will forgive us our trespasses. Contemplating the meaning of the inscription, he stood motionless once more. As the fearfully apologetic wording began to gently disturb him, either the region was one of struggle, having been previously settled by another clan, or perhaps the original inhabitants of the hill shared a preoccupation with myth and superstition with their modern counterparts in the village below. At first, the noise did not filter entirely into his awareness. It was only when repeated with uneven rhythm that his mind recognised its nature. Still facing the inscription, his back turned towards the church hall. The creeping, cold sensation he had experienced outside returned sharply to his arms. His body quivered in retaliation to the temperature, which had nosedived at an alarming rate. His breath visible in panicked puffs in front of his face. John's flesh crawled once more with fear as the sound of one foot scuffing another stone nearby was slowly followed by another. But who would be in such a place? Not one of the villagers, not with their superstitions and stories of warning and omen about the hillside. The footsteps felt close, and as his confidence diminished, John's thoughts now fled simply to escape. As the noise increased in volume, threatening proximity, it was clear that he would have to rush past whoever stood there to make it to the door. There was nothing left for it. He had to push the jarring fear which now gripped him out of his mind. Slowly, he turned to face whoever was behind him. For a moment, he thought that he would be faced by the strained faces of those from his imagination. But the hall was devoid of life, empty, Yet still the sound of feet scuffing cold stone like sandpaper on skin filled the air. John's frozen gasp rang out as something moved in the corner of his eye. Turning quickly to the darkened doorway which led underneath, the head of an indecipherable figure moved as its body raised slowly with each shuffling step from below. Terror coursed through his veins to such a degree that his rationality melted away only to be replaced by pure instinct. As he burst into a sprint, jumping off the platform, leaving the altar and inscription behind, he felt a deep and unyielding fear tear at his insides. Stumbling as he landed, the impact dislodged more debris from above as several pieces of large stone smashed into the church floor, one narrowly missing his head by only a few inches. The exit drew ever closer, and fevered thoughts now filled his mind as he scrambled over and through piles of ruined and forgotten sediment, dead skin cast off by the ancient building without remorse. For a moment he felt surrounded, impressed upon by a man of the cloth preaching of sin and ancient evil, while a pitiable and diminished congregation huddled together in fear of what walked nearby. As the footsteps scuffed the dirt and dust-ridden floor, John's clarity of mind returned, and as he began to climb up a large pile of broken wood and stone, the door to safety on the other side, his curiosity calmed his nerves momentarily. The dread he felt in his stomach told him to continue onward, out into the open, away from that place, 
but his need to know was relentless. He had to look. Taking a deep breath, he turned cautiously towards the altar, slowly casting the light from his phone towards the darkened staircase. The air in the hall now grew colder, John's panicked breath visible in the dim light. Darkness seemed to cloud his vision, yet what he could decipher was unmistakable. A tall figure now stood in the doorway, but a deep impression of tortured and perverted humanity emanated from it. Both man and thing exchanged a long and silent stare. Then a croaking string of syllables emerged from the figure's mouth, a language long forgotten, while its precise definition eluded John's understanding, the contempt which it spoke of did not. The shape in the doorway now moved forward, and as it imitated its sullen movements, John cried out in terror, haphazardly clinging to the rubble, attempting to reach its summit, and then make his way to the door. Now he did not care for silence, his clamouring movements echoing through the hall, several pieces of stone plunging once more from the roof. As he reached the top of the mound, at the very last moment he peered above only to see a rock as large as a man hurtling towards him. Jumping for his life, he tumbled down the other side of the debris pile. As his body rolled down towards the floor, a searing pain wrenched through his side, slamming against the stone ground. The impact surged into his bones, leaving him dazed momentarily. Staggering to his feet, he looked down only to recoil in horror. A large chunk of wood had impaled itself several inches into his right side. Blood poured from the wound as he almost instinctively pulled at the piece of wood, it grating against his insides before finally being removed. He let out an anguished scream, but as he did, so he turned to a noise from behind. The pain in his side was agony, but the sight he beheld was worse than any sensation. The figure in the door was writhing on its belly, dragging itself at an impossible speed over the rubble towards him. Its body blackened, the bandaged remains of a white shroud sliding over the jagged surface with ease. Stumbling in shock, John was paralysed with fear. Then the realisation took him. Escape was close. Limping badly towards the door, its slight opening now within grasp, he shoved his body through the gap into the light outside. The door pressed and prodded at the wound in his side, sending streaks of pain piercing through his abdomen. With one last push, he screamed, the force of his momentum causing him to fall to the ground outside. Looking up through the gap stared the entombed figure, with its face sneering from inside, its arm outstretched, spitting a vile and deafening groan out into the retreating sunshine. John did not take his time to observe the creature. He staggered once more to his feet, his hands now drenched in blood as it clenched the open wound in his side. Moving as quickly from that place as he could, leaving the church grounds behind, he was sure that he could hear voices from deep inside as he fled. The yells and vitriolic protests of long-since-gone clergy and congregation, mocking, resentful, and despised. In his haste, he had lost track of his direction. Unfamiliar with the surroundings, in the grip of panic, he limped on as fast as he could. But disorientation took him, and before he was aware of how or why, he found himself surrounded by a maze of broken and toppled gravestones. Dizzied and grasping for air, he no longer cared where he was, just as long as he could leave the church and its attendant behind. After catching his breath, he began to negotiate the old cemetery, some headstones large and looming, while others humble and ruined. 
Then, as if suffering the effects of an unknown poison, the world began to spin, and as he tried to catch his breath once more, the stones took on an ominous and menacing form, towering above, blocking out the light, staring forcefully down at him. It was not a graveyard which he now stood, but a ring of warped stones several feet high. They had weathered many storms, ancient and forgotten, long before the first brick had been laid of that adulterated church. Feeling compelled to somehow become closer to one of them, he reached out a hand, touching its moss-covered surface. Flashes of a hidden past now filled his mind. His vision clouded, and the world began to spin as an abrupt nausea swamped his senses, one which was so intense that it knocked him to his knees, and though he struggled valiantly against its grip, within seconds he crumbled to the ground, the wound in his side heaving and throbbing with each beat of his heart. Lying on his back staring above, the sky seemed to pulse, and everything around him became distorted, as though he were detached from the world, viewing it through a thick and warped lens of glass. The light curved inward unnaturally, and the veil of the world drew back as John gazed into the abyss behind. Awareness left him.